This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me is Dr. Lauren. Good morning. Good morning. You're perky. I am perky. I am. <laughs> I think I've just got back from America yeah. recently, and I think it's just the complete jet lag, overtired, just across to the other dimension now. Oh, yeah. Okay. Fair <laughs> enough. Well, hopefully you can hang in there for a full I'm sure 60 minutes. I'm sure yep. I can. And Dr. Jeff. I'm also I'm also recovering from getting back from America. Oh, there too. we go. We're probably even part. overlapped when we're in the in, in the same <laughs> town for a while. But yeah, it, it, I, I'm proud that I have caught up after a week, which is yeah. uh, which is. Oh, so you've been back a week? That's yeah, not so bad. I'm back yeah. in uh, back in beautiful. Um, Autumnal Melbourne. Yeah, yeah, see, Dr. Lauren's probably carrying some weird virus that she hasn't <laughs> become symptomatic to yet that she'll pass on in this little room to us. But Won't you, you thank me know. then? Yeah, oh, we'll be thankful later. <laughs> Very thankful. Now, on to some science news. Dr. Lauren, what have you got for us? Well, I guess I'm following on the theme of travel. Um, I've been reading this week about plasma jet engines. Uh, so traditional jet engines create thrust to move through the air by um, mixing compressed air with fuel, and they burn mm. that, and that's what sort of causes the thrust yep. for the plane to go forward. Uh, so the idea with plasma jet engines is they actually use electricity to generate electromagnetic fields, that, that, and the fields are actually what compress and excite the gas. So they can use air and electricity to cause the plane to go forward rather than fuel. Mm. So obviously, you know, in the in this generation of being worried about fossil fuels and the mm. environmental mm. impacts, it's quite exciting. Uh, but the problem's always been that it's actually you can do this when you're up very high because of the atmosphere differences but down the ground they haven't been able to actually make it work so this new research that's come out this week is from a group from the technical university of berlin and they've actually been able to generate the electric electromagnetic field and compress the air um, to actually do it at ground level Hmm. so uh, they are able to get the jets jet engines with um, the plasma to reach speeds of up to 20 kilometres a second. Nice. Which is pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so the idea is basically that you can use this new technique. It's, um, I won't go into details, but it's called uh, pulse detonation to actually make these plasma jet engines work at ground level. Therefore, you know, actually making this a realistic possibility. Hmm. Yeah, it's amazing how, I, I mean, it still bothers me that I can remember as a kid getting on something that pretty much looks like the same commercial airlines that we, yeah. we fly today. That's and you it, think, that's it. Really? Yeah, Some yeah. of them are a bit lighter. Some of them are a bit bigger. Yep, yep. Um, but they same still go the same speed. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. It's a bit of a shame. So presumably um, you still need... Uh, to generate the electricity to start with, but I guess you can use non, you can use sustainable. Well, this is the um, energy for that. You've actually got the nail on the head there because um, the issue really at the moment is, you know, how to generate enough and also whether or not you can store it. So mm. the issue at the moment is that we don't have lightweight batteries mm. that are of a, mm. a large enough size. And it's funny, every time you read any technological story, it comes back to that. I feel like it's, we're still lacking those lightweight, large capacity batteries. Um, but they're saying that they think that they could use solar panels, which makes sense. Well, a plane, any jet, has lots Mm. of flat surfaces Mm -hmm. that are 100% of the time above the clouds facing the sun. Why not just coat 
wings with solar panels. Yeah. You heard it yeah. <laughs> first, folks. Yeah, I suspect maybe idea. not first, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. first no, in the studio. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it is interesting because the issue also is the number of these um, particular thrusters that you'd need. So they're apparently mm. 80 millimetres long. So if you had a uh, commercial airliner, you need 10,000 of these individual or mini thrusters. Yeah. <laughs> so, right. so that's the thing. Do they have pictures? I'd love to say, uh, yeah. Yeah, you know, they're right. Combine you... art and science. What yeah. the futuristic plane with well, the jet it. engine would look like. That's it. But, but they're saying that they think it's feasible um, for small planes at the moment that they hmm. might be able to use these plasma engines Drones. in small planes. That's yeah. yeah. kind of cool. Yeah. It, is, it is hard. I mean, when you think about the engineering with planes, though, mm. and even putting solar panels and so forth, I mean, one of the great things about planes at the moment is people don't like to know this, but the wings are quite flexible. Mm, yeah. They because move, yeah, you they can move a lot. Yeah. And so you think of your average sort of glass sandwiched oh. kind of solar panel. Yeah, mm, not, not so flexible. That, yeah. So, and, then, and there are a whole other polymer um, photovoltaic sort of type arrangements mm. and that are more flexible, but, but there's a lot of engineering there that's required mm. to make these things super robust mm. because planes go through a hell of a time yeah. when they fly. It's yeah. not, you know, it's not simple stuff. That's it's it. really nasty, especially at high speeds. Mm. So at high speeds, you know, most of the planes rip themselves apart. Yeah, yeah. You know, the well, it's, it's interesting because I actually, so and the other thing I hadn't, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, the commercial ones don't go at very high speeds, uh, yeah, yeah. so <laughs> it's okay. But I'm um, like, uh, reading through to the, um, the paper and the background behind this, like I didn't, ever really think about how different it was being at ground level mm. to them being, you know, 30 kilometres mm. up in the air. Yep. And yep. you don't really think about that. So the, the plane has to be able to cope with both of those mm, yeah. environments. Mm. It's amazing well, engineering. It really yeah. is. And when you look at outside temperatures, it's mm. like minus 50 or something. What? I know. Yeah. Yeah. I know. That's yeah. it. And, yeah. and, in fact, there's some great books you can read. You know, we had Amy Shira Title on here a few years. Yep. She, she wrote a great book called Breaking the Chains of Gravity. Mm. And a lot of it is on the early test flights of, you know, um, hyper Hyper, hyperspeed planes, you know, yeah. so planes that go faster than the speed of sound. Yep. And, you know, a lot of the engineering around that, these things just tore themselves apart. Yeah. They were really hard. Right. And there was a time back then when the, the sound barrier, mm. like they weren't even sure if it was almost like a physical barrier mm. you had to break through, like, because no one had gone no, that fast. It. Yeah. So it, it is, the engineering there is spectacular. And in the 50s and 60s, there mm. was so much amazing work going on there. And so, how brave yeah. are those test pilots? Mm. I always just think that. Brave, to... drunk, or just <laughs> damn right crazy. Um, that reminds me of the famous quote. Oh, <laughs> she's breaking up, she's breaking up. Where does that come from? <laughs> Six million dollar man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a test pilot. They had to yeah. put him yeah. back together. Yeah, we rebuilt yeah. him. Um, <laughs> not that well though. <laughs> Six, million dollars is, is, yeah. Six million dollars is nothing now. No, no. I oh, wouldn't buy you a man. Exactly. Not, not but, not, but think one. about it. <laughs> Bionic Eye, their, their reality, you know, in the 70s yeah. and early 80s, that was mm-hmm. futuristic and, yeah. uh, and now many of these, these inventions uh, mm. yeah, Dr. Lawrence work with them. Yeah. Yeah. She's got them in her garage. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, what do you got for us? Well, I was challenged. I like to be challenged. Um, what is, what is your concept of one dimensional? One dimensional? Yeah. Uh, X. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a physics yeah, guy. Yeah, yeah, What's your, what I, would, your... I would say, I would immediately think of like a piece of paper. Well, it is. I know, I know. I know. I agree. It's wrong. But I would, I would think one dimensional is a dot. You write with a, you take your pen and put it on a page. I know the nano level, but just for that, it's a dot. It's one dimensional. But Mm. no, so one, one dimension is forward and back. It's the nicest way to think about it. So that's interesting. The forward and back thing. So this, this was an article that caught my eye in bed this morning called "Scientists Construct a Stable One Dimensional Metallic Material," and I was thinking a dot point, but Shane's of course right. 
Well, that's called the delta function. That's it's like one that's, line. A, that's a, a single point in space. Mm. But then, you know, then it, if it was, say this, this line was a few atoms wide mm. and a meter long, it would be two, it then would become two dimensional. However, this is about a true one dimensional material, a nanowire that's one atom thick. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, that's so this right. is basically, um, it's a metal called tellurium, which mm-hmm. I kind of heard before. I'm not quite sure what it's usually used for. Probably semiconductors. Is, um, but this thing, if you wrap it, the way that this research works, somebody had this idea one day, this physicist, what happens if you wrap this semiconductor in a carbon nanotube, a really small carbon nanotube, will it become a conductor? And they conducted, conducted uh, excuse the pun, some um, computer simulations that said it would. And then they, they said, let's actually test it out and make these wires. So they piped tellurium in these, in the, in these, um, carbon nanotubes. Mm. And it was, think of a normal cable that, you know, that supplies electricity to your appliances. The outer, the plastic bit that surrounds that cable is the carbon nanotube and single wire, the single, um, length of molecules of this tellurium semiconductor is what conducts. Now, mm. at such small dimensions, the properties of this metal are completely changed from mm. semiconductor to full conductor. Oh. And I thought that was, that was amazing. So it's, mm. it's all presumably about that laws of physics are, are different in really, really small scale. Mm. And so what it's saying is the, the funny thing is that it say that they were trying to keep up with Moore's law, which means I, I think it's that we can, st- every year we install double the amount of data on a chip or something like mm. that. And it's funny, they're trying to keep up with it, but shouldn't, aren't we driving it? Aren't the scientists driving? It sounds a bit strange. Anyway, and so they are, they're making sure that, that you can have these molecules, single atom wide wires in, in computers of the future. Mm. So it was mind blowing. Yeah, it's cool stuff. I mean, one of the big problems when you make things that small is heat dissipation. Mm. If you want things to, to work, you've got to be able to dissipate heat. Yep. And the smaller you get, the harder it yep. gets to dissipate heat out of a computer chip. Sure. So. But carbon is a, um, uh, insulator. Mm. And mm. so it, they've got the perfect wire or the near perfect yeah. wire. Mm. All the, all the parameters of these things do change when you get small. Oh. Like if you coat a piece of glass with mm. gold and it's thin enough, it doesn't look gold. Oh really? The color changes. So you get, uh, that's the thing. As soon as you get down to very, very small yeah. quantities of these materials, they're very different. Now, um, interestingly enough, actually, some great work that's been going on by, um, a professor named Mingu, who's based here at, just down the road, the RMIT, not far away. Um, they've been working on, on making holograms thinner. So mm-hmm. a hologram is something that recreates, if you send a light beam through a hologram, and you look from the other side, basically what happens is it recreates the original three-dimensional object that the hologram is essentially a type of photograph of. And the way it does that is the the material that your beam goes through not only changes the the intensity, so the, um, you know, light and dark that you'd see, you know, if you look through a normal stained glass window or something, mm. but it also changes the phase. And that's so this wave of light was ahead of that wave of light. Mm-hmm. A good example of this is if you look at the bottom of a swimming pool on the, on a sunny day, you see those ripples and those patterns. That's actually all the waves of light interfering with one another. So that's, that's the effect of phase. Mm. It's actually very hard though to record that into a medium. So if I was mm. looking at my mobile phone, um, you know, it's basically just a flat piece of glass. It doesn't have any phase information really there. Um, and so I just see light and dark. Mm. But what if I could see 
more than that, all the phase. Then I'd be able to see things three-dimensionally, and that would be cool. In fact, you know, the idea of that, that sort of flat surface would become irrelevant. Mm. It'd be like I'd look at a three-dimensional screen yeah. or, or look at a real scene, you know, a real picture or something. Mm. And so there's been a lot of ways to try and get around this over the years. So when you go to the cinema and you see a 3D film, you wear glasses. Mm-hmm. The reason for that is because what they need to do is they need to give one image to your left eye and one image to your right eye and trick your brain into thinking that it's seeing a three-dimensional object. Because mm-hmm. when you look at a three-dimensional object, because your eyes are separated, your left eye sees one thing and your right eye sees something else. Mm-hmm. But when you look at a flat television, actually both your eyes pretty much see the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. So if you want the television to look three-dimensional, you've got to trick it mm-hmm. and you've got to send one signal from the TV to your left eye and one to your right eye. Mm-hmm. Now, people get giddy. They get all sorts of weird effects of that. It's, mm-hmm. it, you know, it really hasn't taken off as much as they would have hoped. Mm-hmm. But if you could make the television into a proper hologram projector, mm-hmm. then that's different yeah. Yeah. because you don't need the glasses. You're actually looking at a screen that really does project a three-dimensional image. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's hard because normally to make these holograms, they're quite thick mm-hmm. because you've got to let the light go through through them and change as it goes through them, mm-hmm. and that happens thickly. Now, what Mingu's team have been doing there at RMIT is they've been working on a new version of these, what they call nano-holograms, which are extremely thin. They're basically 1,000 times thinner than a human hair. Wow. So that human hair is about, what, uh, 50,000 microns, mm-hmm. um, something like that. So it's about 50 nanometers or something like that, or 50 microns. It's bloody small <laughs> and thin. In fact, you yeah. wouldn't even notice it was on the glass. It would yeah. be that, that small. And they're doing these via these direct write methods with lasers, which means, of course, you can – this is like a – in a sense, it's a bit like having a, a dot matrix printer. You just set the laser up mm. to write the pattern you want ah. mm-hmm. and off you go. So you can make quite complex patterns quite quickly and yeah. hopefully quite scalably. Yeah. So, look, this is really interesting. I remember teaching holography years ago mm. um, when I was a PhD student. I used to teach the holography lab at Melbourne Uni. Mm-hmm. And it's bloody hard to make holograms, yeah. but they look awesome once you've made them. Once done, that's it. Um, but the idea of having them on, on the front of your phone or something is – yeah, that's pretty hard yeah. stuff. So the fact that they're actually managing to do some of that is um, is really, really interesting. So we've gone from one dimensions to three dimensions yeah. in, yeah. Five, <laughs> in five minutes. But in five so minutes. are you saying that those holograms are stills? Rather than movies, what would it take to get a movie? Well, that's different. You'd have to change that structure. Yeah, you'd have to change that structure all all the time. Um, but over, over a period, we we you know you'd be able to do that. Mm. You, just in the same way we use liquid crystals oh, to make displays, course, and that yeah. you'd have to make a material that yeah. could change, change in a three dimensional structure, so that it could change the light as it came came yeah. through. But yeah. but even just being able to make simple three dimensional ones easily, cheaply, and very thin, so that you could you know use them in the sorts mm. of devices that we normally use then then yeah. fantastic. So mm. very, very interesting stuff. So uh, good work there down, just down the road at the RMIT. We do some great stuff here in Melbourne. 102.7. Ah, you are listening to 3 R, folks. I'm Dr. Shane, and I think on the phone now, hopefully we have Verity Morgan-Schmidt, who's the CEO of the Farmers for Climate Action. Verity, can you hear us? Hi, Dr. Shane. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, look, it's great to talk to you, and thanks so much for getting in contact with the station and sending some stuff through, um, because we really are interested in the sort of work that you're doing, because I have to admit, I hadn't heard of your group before, and, and this is something that, especially with the weather over the last few days, is, is crucially important. Give us a bit of an outline of, of what your organisation does. So, Dr. Shane, we're a relatively new organisation. We're about two years old. 
and we're a movement by farmers for farmers calling for climate solutions and strong action on climate change from our federal government. Mm-hmm. So we represent farmers from all over Australia, um, almost every state and almost every commodity. So we've got everything from wine producers to beef producers and wool growers as well. So we represent lots of farmers. I've got over 2,000 farmers in our network already and growing really rapidly. Uh, this is a, a question I, I should know the answer to, but you've got 2,000 in your network. How many farmers are there in Australia? Do, I mean, do we even know that? It's a really hard um, hard one to quantify. And part of the problem is that sometimes farmers may be part-time farmers mm-hmm. or lifestyle farmers, so it's very, very difficult to give you an exact answer. I mean, I'm guessing, though, they'd probably be north of, you know, 30,000 or something, wouldn't I mean, but it's a big number, right? Yes, yes, I definitely believe so. Um, so the National Farmers Federation tell us that we produce over 90% of the daily food consumed in Australia. So mm. farmers are a huge part of Australians' everyday lives. Yeah, definitely. Uh, are we starting to see the impacts of a changing climate already in some of these farming communities or is it something that's still on the horizon? No, Dr Shane, our members are living it every single day. Mm. Um, so it's not only the extreme weather events that we hear about so often, it's also the more silent ones, so the increased evaporation that's leading to subsoil um, moisture loss. It's the changes in the frost window that are wiping out huge amounts of crops. Farmers mm. are, are living the reality and they sit on the front line of climate change. Verity, it's Dr. Lauren here. Um, that's actually very interesting to me. So you obviously are getting a lot of these sort of stories of what your farmers are experiencing. Are you guys able to sort of collate that information, that data? It seems like a very rich resource you've got. Yeah, we're certainly working on it, Dr. Lauren, um, pulling together as many farmer stories as we can because, you know, many of our members have been on the land for four generations. Mm. So they can tell us exactly what has been happening on their farm during that period and a lot of them are telling us that these changes are accelerating and they're very frightening on farm. Mm. Uh, Verity, it's, uh, it's Dr. Jeff here. Um, I have a question for you. It, it, we hear about the effect of climate change on, on land, but to what extent do these effects have downstream trickle-down effects on the physical and mental health of farmers? Gee, that's a really hard one. Uh, we know, Dr Jeff, that farmers and rural communities are disproportionately affected by mm. climate change. Um, there's been some really interesting research by Climate Council into that. We know that mental health can sometimes be a real challenge in rural communities and any situation that exacerbates the stresses that farmers are under on a daily basis already is clearly going to make that worse. So it's really important that we we support our farmers Mm. who are dealing with the realities of climate change. Mm. Faraday, I suppose, I mean, we have to accept that this this is going to happen. It's happening already. Um, so part of it is really about getting getting our farmers ahead of the game in, in a sense and making sure they're prepared for the sorts of changes that are coming. Can, can you speak a bit about what, what's happening there? Because, I mean, most of our farmers, I think people forget, they're, they're actually extremely adaptive to conditions all the time. The, these, these sorts of changes, though, are pretty severe. What, what sort of things are happening to, to keep them ahead of the curve? Okay, so as you've already mentioned, Australian farmers are very, very good at adapting. They're also very resilient. So many of our farmers have been really on the front foot. They've been changing their production methods. They've been doing what they can to improve um, soil carbon sequestration as well. We've got an increasing trend towards regenerative agriculture. But in some areas, we are seeing that the production gains and the improved efficiencies are really starting to struggle against the realities of climate change. Mm. So, so how far can we push things or is this a scenario where 
you know, farm, farm number 27 that used to do one particular livestock and has to become, you know, something else. Is that, is that where we're heading? Absolutely. Yeah, we are already seeing that. And what we are seeing, which is even more frightening, is we're hearing reports that certain areas of Australia, which are currently farmed and are currently relatively productive, aren't going to be able to be viable for agriculture in 60 years. Um, I have three young children, and so what that means mm. to me is that areas that we are currently farming are going to be completely out of production within their lifetime, and mm. I find that very frightening. Yeah, it's scary stuff. And, and in terms of the just the productivity of our farms, I mean, do, do you have a feel for you know we we export a fair bit of food, so I mean, how how is that going? Are we are we seeing declines in our our exports, or are we are we stable? Where are we at? No, well, as I mentioned, Australian farmers are very good at adapting, and they are very very resilient producers. So we're actually seeing many farmers are managing to maintain the production that they were doing. We are mm. seeing improved efficiencies in farm operations, but some of those are starting to come up against fairly hard limits. Mm. Now, what, what can people do? I mean, obviously there's, there's a, a real push here for, for action from government and others. Um, first of all, what, what are you guys doing to achieve that? And then how can, how can people support you? Okay, so what we are doing is we're working across a few priority areas, uh, one of those being promoting the transformation of Australia's energy systems, uh, including campaigns to get more renewable energy out into the regions to support rural Australia. We're also working extremely hard to identify areas for uh, research and development and extension, which can then improve the ability of our Australian farmers to adapt to climate change and to continue to produce as best they can. Mm. Uh, the other area that we're working quite closely on is obviously uh, trying to get uh, real limits on carbon pollution and real action on climate change from the federal government. And lastly, we're working with our farmers to promote the use of carbon sequestration, bringing biodiversity and carbon back into our landscapes. Mm. In terms of what people can do to support us, look, first and foremost, support Farmers for Climate Action. So jump on our website, have a look, connect with us, find out what we're doing, learn a bit more about our food production systems. Uh, so often Australians have lost that connection with the bush, mm. bush, they've lost that connection with where their food comes from. Mm. So it's really important that we understand and where possible support farmers who are already exploring regenerative agriculture, who are doing what they can to mitigate some of the impacts of climate change. And the last thing that I'd really say for people listening today, so your audience to do, is to get involved. Uh, we need strong action from our federal government, and that's not going to happen without a movement from the people. We've seen that already. So we need people to get involved and join the movement to support climate action. Yeah, look, I think that's a, that's a great series of messages there. And I know... Uh, Dr. Jeff here and I often send each other pictures of our zucchinis over the summer and, and I totally freaked him out about a week ago by sending him some pictures of my, my May harvest, which was just, wow. you know, weird stuff. So it, it's, yeah. it's hard work. And, and I think there's uh, the other thing I'd say, you know, for people out there is just don't expect everything to look perfect mm. when you go and buy it. Yeah. You know, buy whatever is produced because there's just an incredible waste, isn't there, Verity, of, of stuff that, you know, can't be sold. Absolutely. I think the war on waste series that's been starting to happen, mm. I think it was this week, has really opened mm. so many people's eyes to what is happening. And yeah. the reality is that when you're, when you're producing food, so much of it is having to be 
thrown away mm. or removed from shelves, shelves because consumers aren't interested. So we need to change that. Mm. You know, ugly fruit is still going to be as good for mm. you mm. Yeah. the prettiest cousin. Mm. Yeah, it often tastes uh, pretty much identical, if yeah. not better, I'd say, so <laughs> half the time. So anyway, Verity, th- thanks so much for chatting to us and good luck with um, with this. It's something that, uh, you know, personally I'd love to see you guys really doing well with this because I think we, we forget where all our food comes from and the, the glow of the fluorescent lights kind of numbs us to the, the difficulties that many of our farmers face, especially at the moment with the, the shifting climate. So uh, good luck and uh, let's chat again in six months or something and see how things are faring. Thanks, Dr. Shane. Thanks, Dr. Jeff and Dr. Lauren. Look forward to it. Great. Thank you. It was uh, Verity Morgan-Schmidt. She's the CEO of the Farmers for Climate Action group and uh, worth getting onto their website and have a bit of a look at what they're doing, folks, because it is something that uh, is critical to our future here in Australia. Triple. In the studio now is Dr Astrid Zeman. She is a research fellow in human vision in the Department of Optometry and Vision Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Astrid, welcome to Triple R. Hi, thanks for having me. You're awake. Yes, I you am. You just got off yes. a plane, you bit your legs. Yeah, we're yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doing we'll all fly, right. Yeah. Fire you up. We'll talk about something interesting like your work. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll talk about it at length. No sounds, worries. Sounds good. Now, you, you work on um, computer vision systems, essentially ones that mimic our human vision systems. Mm-hmm. So what, what exactly does that mean? What are you trying to do there? I guess that I'm, I'm trying to imitate the way that our neurons process visual information mm-hmm. uh, in the way that um, our I guess, uh, the computational operations that our neurons um, perform in different different levels and in, in different stages of, of, uh, of our visual system. Mm. I always find it interesting because, you know, obviously those systems are set up due to our evolution over many years and, and then we see things today in our modern society that sometimes are illusions that, we, that don't quite work for our visual system. Mm. I mean, that's not that surprising, is it, I, I suppose? I mean, our, our systems have probably evolved to do pretty simple stuff or how does that work? <laughs> uh, well, I guess um, our, our brains are really good at making shortcuts and mm-hmm. and um, I, I guess exploiting the information that we get in our natural environment. So uh, with images that are presented as illusions, they reveal the shortcuts that our brain is making. Mm-hmm. So they they kind of um, expose the the uh yeah the operations that our brain exploits in order to make sense of the environment so, so can you give us an example there because i'm sure you know people hear about this but they they, they wouldn't realize that every day as they walk around mm. this is happening you know you, your brain's kind of cheating cheating you in yeah, a way. yeah 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 well i guess the the everyday example that I use is, say, if you're watching a video on your phone or on television, that the frame rate is 25, normally 25 mm. frames a second, yeah. but your brain is interpolating all those images together to, um, I guess, fantasize movement that's right. happening. Right, smooth yeah. movement. Yeah, mm. yeah. And so that way our brain's kind of useful because we wouldn't be able to watch television unless mm. our brain was making these sorts of shortcuts. And how many images do we need for it to be smooth? I remember knowing this number long, yeah. long ago. I think it was about nine or something. It was oh, like, really? Yeah, it's a, it's oh. a low number. Yeah, 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 it's a relatively low number. We're pretty, we're yeah. pretty hopeless. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen someone flick a cart, you know, with a little stick man? You know, yeah. you can flick through some cards yeah, with a stick man books. and the little dude's moving around and stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we're actually, we are pretty simple. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the frame rate for television here in 
Australia's 25 frames a second. Mm. In the US, it's 30. But we don't really need much, to, yeah. to be honest, to, yeah. for, our, for our brains to make sense So US just trying to be better than us. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, we need 30. <laughs> our brains are so fast. If we don't have 30, it doesn't look smooth. <laughs> it doesn't quite work. Now, let's um, let's go over into the, so the computer world because what you're talking about is simulating mm. these systems because obviously our brains are highly complex in the way they do this and there's many things that you can sort of pull out. But mm. why do we want to simulate this um, in, in visual systems that are computer-based? Yeah, well... Uh I guess there's a twofold reason for that. Uh, one is we might want to improve our computer vision systems. So mm-hmm. how, I guess, if we can create artificial systems that can recognise objects with the same fidelity that we can do as humans, and mm-hmm. that's really useful. Uh, and the other um, reason I'm interested in exploring computer model vision is uh, to reveal... Uh, the neural underpinnings of how our brains process right, information. Right. Hmm. Um, so, Astrid, it, it, it can be it can be a good or and a bad thing to see these these illusions. Are you studying both aspects of that with computing? Yeah. Well, I I see it as a good thing because because our our brains can. We can handle so much mm. out there in, in the, in the world. So we can handle noisy environments, mm. changes in lighting and translation. And, and so our brains are really good at processing images. Uh, and, and I, I guess illusions somehow have come across as being a bad thing, but they're actually, if, if we didn't see illusions, it's usually, um, it usually reveals uh, sorts of problems that you might have mm-hmm. with your with your visual system. Yeah. But I mean, we can be hoodwinked. For example, magicians. So wouldn't it be great? <laughs> wouldn't it be great to have a computer that can actually watch a magician and say, "Oh, I, I didn't see any illusion. I can tell you exactly how that was done." <laughs> takes all the, that be, takes all the fun out, though, doesn't yeah. it? <laughs> <laughs> we'll yeah. Well, yeah. You see, that kids can can also um, see through those sorts of magic tricks, and that's mm. more to do with misdirection and mm. attention. And how, mm. where your attention is at a particular time, uh, yeah. So it'd be really interesting to build those kind of aspects into this, <laughs> into this computation, or maybe to simulate children as well as adults, if you want to simulate child behaviour. Although that's oh, not yeah. a. I think what you're saying there is that's not a visual um, yeah. issue. That's a that's an attention span issue. Yeah, so, yeah, which so is which is still it's related, in, but it's in vision is mm. like where your attention is, um, mm. and there are. There are, yeah, people who do specialise in that, yeah. Mm. So uh, my question was related to that in that there mm. are some people that, that can't perceive some illusions. So, you know, even the adults, yeah. so there's, you know, there's a very interesting area as to why they can't. Mm. So are you able to do modelling to look at those sorts of things as well or is that getting a bit too complex? Uh, well... Uh, I'll, give, I'll give one example. So there's a there's an illusion called the face mask illusion, and this is where if you uh, if you can imagine a, a mask that you would put on your face, and if you hold it so that you're looking inside of it, it'll appear that the face will pop out at you. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So mm. some of you might have seen mm. it, and uh, for say for example, people with schizophrenia don't perceive this particular illusion, and if you look at the uh, I guess neural recordings of of um, of, of like the responses that they would get they uh, they don't necessarily perceive the feedback that we would get so uh, and well you can model this by removing the amount of feedback that you mm. put in your computational mm. model yeah. uh, and 
And so in that way, it can be a bit easier to, to, um, to model these sorts of effects. Mm. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah, so you can kind of explore those sorts mm. of questions and, and look at potential, uh, diagnostics for, for people who might have, you know, mm. mental disorders. Yeah. So, so when, when you go to program, you're programming these vision systems to mm. actually mimic our vision. I mean, you, you must know, like, I, what I'm trying to ask is, we have a very complex system that has shortcuts so that we can do some really seriously complicated shit fast. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's the bottom line with yeah. our eyes, right? Yeah. So, do you, how do you program that into your system? Because obviously you can't program in the complexity of the human brain to, to do this, yeah. but, but you're somehow programming in, uh, I suppose, optimization routines that also have these illusion flaws. How do you, how do you do that? Yeah, uh, I guess, um, so your input is uh, an image mm-hmm. that would be pixel by pixel. Yep. And you feed this in through a, a series of filters. Mm-hmm. So, and, and they might, these filters might respond to, they might pull out the edges that you have in an image. And what I can do is look through uh, these models layer by layer and see how the information is transformed mm-hmm. and then compare the final results and, and sort of, and compare what the computer outputs to to what a human would see, and then um, and then make uh, a link between you know what what filters would we be using that could contribute mm, to mm. this uh, illusion. And have you got a model now where if you sort of trained it on two or three different illusions, it'll work on four, five, and six? Is that is that working? Can you do that? Uh, I I think each. Uh, usually each model is quite specific to a particular visual mechanism. So it might be mm. dealing with object recognition or it might be doing, doing lightness discrimination. Mm. So, yeah. And, and when, when you put all of this into the models, I mean, do you find they're that much more efficient at doing the imaging? I mean, that's, that's ultimately the goal, right? Is to make these systems more efficient. Are you already seeing that, that they're better at it with these inherent flaws? Oh, I, I, I'm not sure about that just yet because uh, I guess it's yeah I guess it, it we're still looking at what reveals the the maximum amount of information that you would get out of these systems mm. so uh, yeah yeah mm. well um, Astrid thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us I mean this is really interesting stuff I mean there's so much we were talking about this just before when we were talking about holograms and so forth yeah. in the new section. I mean, <laughs> you know the the eye I mean yeah Lauren's always on about the eye. But, <laughs> Yeah, she can't help herself. Best bit of the body. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, (laughs) But it really is fascinating because the the human eye and the way we see is so complicated. And the thing I love about it is so much of the complexity is hidden to us. Mm. Like we don't see it when we, Mm. you know, the first time someone gives you one of those color blindness tests and you, there's that moment of anxiety. (laughs) (laughs) And if you're like Lauren, you say, there's a five there. Can't you see it? Even when there's not. does to be, um, but there's so much complexity there. So it's 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 fascinating to hear you doing this work in computers to try and mimic that behaviour and then learn something back about ourselves and at the same time making those systems more efficient. So yeah. great work. Um, keep it up and um, yeah, hopefully we'll we'll see these things really in operation in years to come. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks so much. Cheers. Dr. Astrid Zeman is a research fellow in human vision in the Department of Optometry and Vision Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Three.
Now, Jeff, what do you go first? Well, first of all, um, I've got a little um, um, advertisement out there about a research project that uh, Shane will be, uh, that Einstein and Gogol will be retweeting. Of course. Uh, by the end, uh, by the end of the show, um, it's about it's We're about deadline. I'm home relaxing on a Sunday, are they? <laughs> Imagine whether you either have got a child or you might have a child in the future. Uh, there's a lot of um, experiments going on in laboratories around Melbourne and around the world that are starting to put together, um, for example, tests on whether on, on whether your likelihood that your child is likely to get a chronic disease, mm. but with absolutely no idea how the community. It at large would react to these tests. Yeah, this is yeah, a questionnaire yeah. that's based on that. What do you out there think? Hmm. Mm. And so Shane will retreat that. Um, it's a study based at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. It can be found on their Facebook page, but we'll tweet that as well. You would be impressed to know, Dr. Jeff, that I already have about a week ago. There you go. So we'll awesome. do it again. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, and uh, what caught my eye in my second news story was this, the headline, Why Using AI to Sentence Criminals is a Dangerous Idea. Um, I don't know if anybody out there have you have you seen the Tom Cruise um, movie Minority Report? Mm, yeah. Well, that is almost becoming reality at the moment. That there are algorithms out there that the justice system in the US and uh, and now in the UK are having these algorithms to guess which individuals are more likely to commit crimes. Mm. It sounds pretty scary. It has been used, not totally, not to totally be there to to be hundred percent of the evidence, but uh, but in. Uh, in combination, there's a product called Compass in the US that's based on artificial intelligence and you feed in all sorts of data. The problem is, even after this case, we have no record of what data was used because it's a proprietary system. Oh. And it can include uh, variables uh, such as, you know, previous, uh, previous occupation, socioeconomic status, even things like head size apparently can be used in these these calculations. So, so we're going back to the Middle Ages. Exactly. Say, it, it, um, it sounds a little like yeah. that. Um, and people are scared, not because not it's not a good thing, but mm. because it's it's not open access. We can't actually tell what's in it. Mm. Um, and there's, you know, people warning that, that such things should be made open access and we should really understand and they shouldn't be the sole evidence. And now there's um, a system called um, Valkyrie that the... Um, the West Midlands Police in the UK are trialling. This sounds a bit better that it's putting, to solve crimes, it's putting all the data from all over the country into this one database to do a lot of cross-referencing, which, believe it or not, isn't really done that much interstate mm. or inter-county, etc. Mm. So that's good. But again, it's, it's, it is using artificial intelligence that learns on what it previously found. But again, uh, we shouldn't let that be, you know, we shouldn't have, you know, something like, like um, the Minority Report where an AI bot or whatever is deciding guilty or, in, well, they will never decide guilty or innocence unless they actually substitute the, uh, the jury as well. Mm -hmm. But they are being used, but they, they are being used in, in, uh, in crime investigation and in the judiciary. So, Interesting, but to it'd be good to keep a watch on that technology and mm. so it doesn't get out of hand. Mm. So is the idea with it to use that technology preemptively as well, to sort of highlight people that might commit a crime and then observe them? Well, it's or? almost, and it's saying which mm. of your, you know, it's kind of saying they're asking questions, which of your employers is more likely to commit a crime? Yes, they're yeah. asking this, they're starting to ask this kind of question. So, you know, there's so many uh, that some of these big companies are run these 
personality tests mm. um, and they could be running this kind of test soon. You know, mm. they put, I mean, you're back. And one of the flaws of the system is if you're black, you score higher, higher. than mm. if you're white. And it's based on reality, but not based on the reasons for that reality. So it mm. can get a bit, a bit it scary. Just, it honestly just feels like we're going backwards. We've been trying to avoid discrimination yes. like this. And now yeah. there's a computer program that can discriminate. And it's, <laughs> it's I think bizarre. it's to be used judiciously, yeah. <laughs> pardon the pun, but... <laughs> But it can be useful, but as you can, anybody can see how it can get out of hand. Mm. If we just hand these things over, mm. um, it can get a bit scary. So we always will need the human factor, mm. I think. Mm. I think that's the key, isn't it? Making mm. sure there's, there's appropriate judgment somewhere. I mean, I, I've been reading lately about some of these amazing AI systems that are being mm. used to do dermatology work, you mm. know, so identification. We reported about this a few weeks back, mm. identification mm. of potential, you know, skin cancers. Mm. And they do a better job of identifying mm. than dermatologists do. Mm. But it's not about putting dermatologists out of work. Yeah. It's, you know, if you're going to see 7,000 patients a year, you want to see the right 7,000. Yeah. And these AI systems can help have more people, you know, just with their phones doing tests themselves and then knowing that they should go and see a dermatologist. Mm. So it's about how you use these technologies, mm. not about, mm. I think, you know, displacing human yeah. judgment mm. with yeah. them. Mm. But, but sometimes, mm. you know, if you're, if you're, any, any one person can make decisions on the basis of, you know, 10, 15 facts at a time. Yep. You've got a computer system that can do it with 1.5 million facts. Sorry, but, mm. you know, you're just yep. not going to be able to be, compare to that. Mm. But mm. at some stage, the human factor's got to come back mm. into into the equation. So, mm. Mm. It is an interesting area too because I think it's it's growing so quickly. Like, So I often see it in the, in the medical field in that, you know, technologies are improving. In imaging, for example, mm. there's all these new ways that you can image the eye. And it's almost a bit of a catch-up game with research to try and work out, you know, if we, if we see this, what exactly does it mean yeah, and what's yeah. going to happen to that patient? So you still need exactly that knowledge about the disease process and yeah. those and things. At some yeah. stage, we're going we're to talk about um, driverless cars on the show. We'll do a bit oh, definitely. And, and one of the things that I, I like to point out is that, mm. and, and you know this well, is that people have laser eye surgery mm. um, all the time. And this is done by a computer. Mm. Um, the last mm. thing you would want is for the human mm. to control that laser because, frankly, they just can't do it fast <laughs> enough. So we've already accepted in certain areas of our mm. lives that we just release control completely to mm. a computer system. And cars are the next step. I mean, frankly, you know, you pointing a laser at my eye versus me being in a car, one of those I'm really worried about. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not a car. So we've accepted it with, with that stuff. We, you know, these things will come in. We're going to mm. have a big chat about that in an upcoming mm. show. Now, You've been on a junket. I, I mean, been... sorry, a conference. <laughs> well, I went to Baltimore, so it wasn't exactly a junket. Ooh, it's not yeah, really okay. a, um, yeah. you know, tropical paradise. Yeah. <laughs> but no, look, I've been at the um, Association for Research in Vision and Ophthalmology Conference. So it's called the ARVO Conference, Hello. which every Australian thinks is hilarious. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, but no, it was, it was wonderful. And look, there was a million things I could talk about, but there were a couple that I thought would be of interest to our audience. One was our keynote speaker this year. Um, we had Mary Claire King, um, oh. who's a professor of medical genetics in Washington, University of Washington. And she just honestly has done everything. So as a PhD student, um, she actually was part of the group that found that humans and chimpanzees shared 99% of the genome. Uh, oh, and then right. she went on to identify and name the BRCA1 mm. gene for, for uh, breast, cancer. breast cancer. So, look, yep. I mean, amazing things. And she's obviously um, doing a lot of other areas. She's now working, looking at the genetic mutations that can cause schizophrenia, schizophrenia and also some um, you know, mm. severe inherited diseases as well. But 
she was really interesting because she was talking a lot about um, how this information should be used. And her actual thing is that um, she was saying everyone over 30, she believes, should be test- tested for the BRCA1 gene, which I thought was very interesting because she's someone obviously that's worked in this area a long time. And she was saying she believes the evidence is strong enough that women over 30 should be actually getting that information. And I guess it kind of um, relates back to what you were talking about before, Mm. Dr. Jeff, with this idea of, you know, how does the community feel about risk and and knowing things like what our genotype is. And has she asked those types of questions? Yeah, so she's doing a lot of work at the moment and she has stratified it more. So depending Mm. on what people's risk is as to what she thinks your Mm. test should be. But, um, yeah, she was very much saying, look, it's it's information that women can have to... But it comes back to, Mm. I mean, one of the things I always get concerned about with this sort of stuff Mm. is that generally Mm. we are really piss poor at giving that information to people. So let me give you a very simple example. There's big issues with antibiotics at the Mm. moment. When was the last time your GP actually explained anything about that at all? Too. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever come across but a scenario where, mm. and this is relatively simple information compared yeah. to the BRCA1 gene. Yeah. Um, yep. And yet, do we engage with with the mm. community in mm. a way that ups their information so that they're part of the solution? Yeah. No, we don't. No. And so, until we can do it with some of that simpler stuff, I, I'm all for the information being out there. I think mm. it's important because mm. people can make choice, mm. but it has to be done carefully. Now, yeah. in some of the genetics areas, it is being you know there are genetic counselors that is it. being done carefully. Yeah. Yep. But you know, with mm, caution. Mm, but mm. the point, the point is about genetic counselors is that they're stretched already. Mm, yeah. yeah, of course. Uh, and they're absolutely essential to interpret what, what the geneticists say. Oh, definitely. It's such a position that we couldn't, couldn't exist without them. But then you have companies like 23andMe mm. giving all this information mm. to you. And you can basically Dr. Google the whole thing and be really mm. paranoid. Yeah. I chose not to when I did 23andMe. I, I, I got all the information mm-hmm. that shows I need yep. to know about ancestry. Mm. Right. And uh, yeah. one particular disorder that I, that, 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 that I may or may not have. Mm. Um, and things like APOE, for example, you can check whether you're high or low risk for Alzheimer's. Mm. I'd rather not, not know. know. But mm. I think the reality is there's a, a, a spectrum of opinions out there. There's people that really want to know and really don't. However, there's not enough information on those people that do want it. Mm. What are the implications for them once they find it out? You may go, it's like, to some people like the Pandora's box. Yeah. I know it now. Mm. What on earth am I going to do with this yeah. information? Well, I think in, in, in areas where there are treatments and where there are mm. interventions and so forth, and often early detection is mm. the key. Yeah. I mean, to me, that's where the systems need to be set up so mm. that you can use this information and get regular... And breast cancer is a great example that's of this, it. where you can get Very. regularly tested, yep. regularly monitored yep. to make sure it yep. doesn't affect you. Absolutely clear cut to me that yep. is that is risk mitigation. Do yep. it smart. Go ahead. Yep. In other areas where there are no treatments and it's basically just you finding out you may have a death sentence yep. ahead of you yeah. in ten years. Yeah, I'm with you, Jeff. Yep. Um, just hand me the bottle of bourbon and 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 don't tell me. I <laughs> just yeah, mm-hmm. hope for the best. It's so. that treatment. That's one of the, yeah, the, yeah. the definitions of what of why a test can come in because you can do something about it. Yeah, if that's you right. Find the result. I think yep. that's the core. Um, folks, thanks so much for listening in today for an hour of science, Dr. Lauren. Great having you in the studio. Absolute pleasure. Jeff, great to have you soon. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. Have a fantastic Sunday, folks. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? 
Check out our website at rrr.org.au.